Hello, everyone, and welcome to the BCMA podcast. Myself, Leah, and Koe Taylor. This is a continuation of a conversation that she and I had last month in June of 2021. Uh, we recorded a lot of resource content and went far beyond the uh, reasonable listening time of a podcast. Here we are bringing part two. I'm Leah. And I'm Koe. And we are the BCMA Indigenous Engagement Team. I personally am not Indigenous. I am of settler descent. And so my experience comes from work experience, contract work with Indigenous communities. So that's a background that I can speak from. And I'm of mixed Indigenous and settler ancestry. Um, Really grateful to be working alongside the Indigenous communities uh, that Lee and I have the privilege of working with supporting the great work that they are doing and also helping non-Indigenous communities with their reconciliation, decolonization, and repatriation work. But just before we get going on these resources, wanted to reiterate that all of the opinions in this podcast are Leah and I's alone. We don't claim to know everything and we definitely do not represent any Indigenous communities, ideas, beliefs, or values. I'm just really passionate about the information that is found in these resources and think they are fantastic resources for non-Indigenous museum and cultural centers to use in their work. Great, let's get started. This one's really good. So if you haven't heard of The Secret Life of Canada, the podcast, it's fantastic. It's Mm -hmm. such a good resource. It started originally in 2018 and has been recently picked up by the CBC. So it was originally an independent podcast and their description is the secret life of Canada is a history podcast about the country, you know, and the stories you don't. Mm-hmm. And that couldn't be more accurate. Yeah. Um, to me, the tone of this makes the topics that are talked about a lot more approachable than say a large document, like the resources you were talking before. Mm-hmm. And because there's still some hard hitting issues in these episodes. It's still heavy, mm-hmm. but I think the host does a fantastic job of making it feel like it's fair. It's fair that we're uncomfortable, we're learning, but here's a little bit of resources. Here's some information that you should know about and that you can take as you want and hopefully move towards, in our case, reconciliation and relocating ancestral items. Really digestible resource. Totally digestible. It's hosted by two people, Leah Simone Bowen and Fallon Johnson. And if you're a regular CBC listener, Fallon Johnson is also, I think, the new host of Unreserved. So her voice will be very familiar to CBC listeners. I was maybe losing my mind a little bit when I heard her on Unreserved on the radio. And I was like, I know this voice. I know this voice. And I was like, oh my God, it's Fallon Johnson. So fun. Mm. I'm so happy CBC picked this up because it's so valuable. Mm. But you're totally right. It's 
a little bit more lighthearted. It's less intensive. The episodes are anywhere from a couple minutes to I think 40 minutes long. And some of the topics do run over two different episodes because there's some big hitters. But the little ones are introductions to people you should know about in Canadian history. And it's not always Indigenous history, but it's also episodes about Chinatown and episodes about different communities within Canada that you maybe skim over in the history books. Mm -hmm. They have a great episode on the Indian Act. Also a really great episode on Kanesatake, which is commonly referred to as the Oka Crisis, that one blew my mind. I did not understand the Oka crisis before. It's so good in the sense that it provides so much historical context to things like the Oka crisis where you're like, oh yeah, this makes so much sense. This should be required knowledge for most people who grew up and know about the Oka crisis. Mm-hmm. The Mounties, Expo 67's Indian Pavilion, like all of these episodes and topics are so intriguing mm-hmm. and they go far beyond the things I learned in school. Yeah. And I think it's nice to have the personal ones. A lot of them, it's particular people that they're talking about. And so in that way, it's like easier to learn about the history as well. If it's just through one person's lens, it's not this event happened at this time. And these are the two parties involved no, this is someone's grandmother. This is someone's grandfather who was involved in whatever event and this is their experiences. So having like that human connection is really nice. And I think there's just some really great points of Indigenous history that are outside the normal narrative of Indigenous people. We talk a lot about, oh, like my perspective of Indigenous people is this and it's typically stereotypical. But there's some great stories about like Indigenous leaders and history makers in here that really it shows the diversity and the impact and value of all these Indigenous community members that go beyond the stereotypical and often negative stories that we learn about in school. So I think that's like really valuable too. There's this fun one about Bernalda Wheeler, the first lady of Indigenous broadcasting, they say. That's like a great contribution and an amazing broadcaster. And it's not some stereotypical story of an Indigenous person. And I think that kind of learning opportunities are important as well. And something I noticed when I was looking over stuff for, for us recording this right now is that I think since the pandemic started, they've actually added these curriculum packages so that teachers can use the podcast in their classrooms and link it to curriculum in school so that they can use it as a teaching tool. And I looked Mm -hmm. through one of the slides, I think it was for the Indian Act episode, and it was so many extra bits from like just the podcast, but adding interviews and video and bits of the actual legislation and all of this stuff that really richly contextualizes the learning and good reflection questions for teachers to use for different age groups. And there's just a lot of adaptability in the curriculum packages that I think if you're a teacher and you're trying to teach these big concepts, this is such a great resource. I'm really impressed with the the curriculum packages. And as a person who has friends who have been teaching this year and struggling this year, 
especially struggling with, with indigenous learning. I'm not finding quite enough contextual grabby things for kids' attention, especially in the Zoom world. These curriculum packages are so good and I wish I had seen them sooner so I could share them with everyone I know. Yeah, yeah. And that even can serve as inspiration for museum work in terms of like exhibitions and the stories that we share. And of course, those are going to be alongside and taking lead from Indigenous communities, but really shaping exhibitions and collections in a way that represents the Indigenous communities and not the settler perspective of those Indigenous communities and putting Indigenous folks' voices into the exhibits. And I think these podcasts are a really interesting example of that, of Indigenous folks taking back their narratives and putting it out in a way that they want to. And I think that's important for museums and cultural centers to learn is that like, currently a lot of exhibitions are through a settler lens, even if they're about like Indigenous or non-Indigenous, that there needs to be someone involved that can really do the, the proper storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. That's a good one. Everyone should go listen. And it's just a podcast. You just stick the headphones in and you can continue your work. You don't have to read. You don't even have to take your headphones out after this episode. Yeah, exactly. Just leave them in. (laughs) Um, The next resource was, as I warned you before we started recording, I have so many notes on this Mm -hmm. one and I'm going to try so hard to keep my thoughts brief. But the next resource we looked at was First Peoples Cultural Council recommendations for decolonizing British Columbia's heritage related processes and legislation. This was published in December 2020. David M. Shape, George Nicholas, and Kirsten Delata are the authors. And there's so much stuff in this document that we could talk about because these are the laws that need to change in the terms even oh it's so much it's a lot I'm super grateful that that First Peoples Cultural Council published this Mm because I found it incredibly eye-opening I don't know about anyone listening or like you Koei but heritage legislation I don't know if the word is like not impressed or overwhelmed or underwhelmed I don't even know Mm -hmm. what it is that I feel about it but it's never easy to read or understand But something that I liked so much about this was in the start, they break down some definitions and they talk about how cultural heritage is all based on value that is assigned. And that as a colonized country, the dominant population controls that value that's assigned. So Mm. things that, that are relevant to indigenous cultural heritage have largely been looked at with an archeological colonial lens to the point where the legislation is not even mm-hmm. very good at. Yeah, it doesn't encompass everything. Like one point they make is like the intangible cultural heritage and how that is not represented. And even the idea of heritage, because it's a colonial term, it really has a, a, a narrow focus in terms of time as well for cultural heritage. When was this heritage and therefore relevant? And I think it's also, it really goes, it goes into the whole colonial framework. And like you say, what is important for settlers? But with that comes, what do we care to learn about that? We may want this item, but at no point did anyone care to learn the meaning behind it Mm -hmm. or the value to the community. So 
when you want to look at repatriating an item, a lot of that information is missing. A lot of the value of that item is just not known. And even more, it's not displayed correctly in exhibits because, you know, it's it, a lot of the time you hear the way it's displayed, it's no, this is for ceremony. You can't just hang it on a wall. But the, the work to understand that it doesn't happen with the current definitions and structures that museums and cultural centers work under. Yeah, and I think that there's, so the document sort of breaks things into the different legislative areas, and there's a whole section or a couple of sections about collecting policies, and I think that if anyone is free writing their collections policy, this is super valuable document to read because there's just some really atrocious wording of the, the Heritage Branch Collections Policy and Handling Guidelines. And some of that, if you can just avoid it in your museum collections policy, that's great because it's not very good. There's a lot to learn from it. The chance find protocols for fossils. And I didn't even recognize that this policy existed, but if you're a developer and you've found some fossils, you're asked, not required, asked to report fossils to the Heritage Branch, the Royal BC Museum, your local museum, your local paleontological society, or the appropriate staff at the nearest university or college. Indigenous mm-hmm. communities are not even listed as an option to whom you should be reporting fossil discoveries. Mm-hmm. So how does that not even factor into a consideration? And then there's a lot in this about land agreements, and I am by no means well-versed in land agreements, but the, the document mentions over and over that in BC, lots of the land is crown land and it's unceded, which means Aboriginal title has never been surrendered or acquired by the crown. So in 2014, there was a big court decision, the Chilcotin Nation versus British Columbia, and the Supreme Court recognizes that Aboriginal title confers ownership rights similar to those associated with the simple. So you get a right to decide how the land will be used, the right of enjoyment of the land, the right to possess the land, the right to the economic, like all of the things about the land, like the land was never given over to the crown. So if you're finding fossils on crown land and that land has Aboriginal title, Mm -hmm. as per the Supreme Court case, those fossils belong to the indigenous people, Mm -hmm. but they're not even mentioned as a place you take fossils when you find them. Like, ooh, my mind is just blown by the lack of thought mm-hmm. the legislation has in it over and over mm-hmm. again. Yeah. And then moving beyond that, when you even identified the community that those items belong to, there's a great point that I didn't even think about that this information, the you know, cultural importance of the items may not even want to be shared with colonial powers, because in a lot of cases, they shouldn't be. It, they're sacred items. Um, only particular knowledge keepers are equipped to talk about and know how to care for these items. So a lot of the time, like you'll make a connection with an indigenous community and it's just, it's not right. You're not talking to the right person. You don't know everything about this item and therefore are mishandling it. And then communities don't know then what you do with this information, even if they are comfortable with you having it. So I think it's like that emotional awareness that we need to have too, that these 
laws don't really take into account. They just see the tangible item and identify it, mark it down, put it away. But there's a lot of meaning behind these items. Yeah. I was noticing this trend in the news this year, and this document made so much more sense of this for me. Grace Island, I think it was, in 2015, someone was building a house on it, and it was there were some burial cairns documented on that island, and since then the government has purchased the island off of the private owner who was building a house. But that person had all the right permits to build a house on an island that is known by the community as a burial location, but he had all the right permits. And then, so that was confusing to me and that made the news a lot. And then March, 2021 in Seashelt, there were some burial cairns that were knocked over during logging. There was a case of that in the north, the northern part of this pro- the province. And then again, another building problem on Hornby Island when the pub tried to expand and found burial sites that were are associated with the Comox First Nation those three last ones all happened in 2021. And I keep thinking over and over again, I don't understand if these are burial sites, why does this keep happening? And then I realized while reading this document that the BC archeological site inventory has 43,121 archeological sites as of December 14th, 2018. Mm -hmm. That includes culturally modified trees, pre-contact trails, traditional use sites like clam gardens, does not include heritage places that are post-1846 because that's mm-hmm. the line they draw in what is history, quote-unquote. Exactly. But yeah. they don't monitor these 43,000 sites. They have no mm-hmm. mandate to care for these sites. They have no mandate to assess the sites. There's no definition of the damages that could be caused the sites or a path for like protections or sanctions for those who cause the damage. Mm-hmm. And it makes so much sense to me now how these keep popping up in the news is because the archaeology branch is recording them and then doing absolutely nothing about them. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect that. Mm-hmm. And now everything is making sense to me. Yeah. And like you say, the description of what heritage and culture is, I think causes that. So if the description of history or like culturally significant places fails to encompass places like you're talking about and indigenous and encompass indigenous concepts of cultural heritage, then they're not recognized as places of value to the full extent that they should be and therefore don't receive the protection or funds or interest in protecting them. So like you say, yes, we identified this place, but there is obviously no kind of like stronger interest in protecting them because the cultural significance isn't recognized in current legal jargon. Yeah, because they even note that like all burial grounds before 1846, which is the date of British rule, fall under protection of the Heritage Conservation Act. So that's this act that is apparently not protecting anything very well. And anything after that date is protected by the Cemeteries Act. So it's like a completely different set of rules because Mm. the British arrived. Heaven forbid that the British cemeteries get disrupted by logging. Yeah. What's important? What history is Mm -hmm. important? Which is valued more? Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. heartbreaking. Yeah. And I think another concern with kind of current legislation is the lack of requirements for folks to engage with Indigenous people 
-hmm. with these sites and cultural items. So like the involvement's not there. And they talk about how like the visual records Indigenous people are quite involved in, but that's where it ends. Mm -hmm. And you question why not? Why is it ending with just photos? Because like films and photographs that depict Indigenous people or aspects of their culture, like more or less rest with Indigenous councils, or at least they're consulted, but it ends there. And so a lot of these sites are, like you say, left in like these weird legislations that don't make sense. Yeah, and the thing that I thought about when I was done reading this document was, wow, I really hope that BC's implementation of UNDRIP, meaning that all future changes to laws and all introduced laws have to align with UNDRIP, means that these heritage or archaeology branch laws will see some kind of checks and balances in the future, because these are they're awful. Wow. I didn't know that they were so bad, but they need yeah. to be changed and updated and under mm-hmm. would be the perfect way to fix them. Mm-hmm. And another one like they note that I think should be updated is the repatriation and Indigenous cultural material section and that the way that it's worded right now implies that the province and not the Indigenous peoples the province owns the materials until proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. So again, you're putting the onus on the indigenous community to prove that's their items, even if you know whose land it was found on. So, I mean, it's the question of who decides what's the appropriate authority and like that needs to be revisited because that's a huge barrier for communities in accessing their items or places. Yeah, definitely is. Like I said, there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. This one's a good one to read because I think it just it makes you shake your head a little bit. And if you're waiting for, if your excuse for not doing anything for reconciliation or to move forward right now is I'm not legally required to, like, get, yeah, shake your head. Here we go. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, this reading, this, this will make it clear how wrong that sounds. Yeah. <laughs> or that you're taking advantage of the colonial systems that yeah. again protect the way that you do things. Exactly. Like, this is prime examples of how legislation protects the colonial viewpoints and the things Mm. colonizers put importance on and doesn't reflect the true nature of the land we live on so Mm -hmm. don't wait for the laws to change this is gonna be a really long time please just be a better person Mm -hmm. and like an advocate because you may have relationships with local government and you may able then have the power to help Indigenous communities repatriate, have access to their things. And whereas if they went directly, the legal framework may make that extremely difficult for them. But you have different relationships. Also, yeah, it just feels like, I'm sorry, it's a cop-out. If you're waiting for the law to make you have to do things, like you're just not Mm. acting as an empathetic human being yeah or a person who feels that their institution be, is representative of their community yeah you'll see in this document that it's inadequate and at the very least not fair and doesn't make sense in a lot of cases so i think i like one point they make this is very clearly shows that we're not post-colonial and we're very much in the middle of it if these are the type of legal frameworks that we're using right now definitely shall we we have two more Move resources on. yes <laughs> We pulled an article from the Journal of Museum Education. 
This one is called Activating Diversity and Inclusion, a blueprint for museum educators as allies and change makers. And this is like 14 pages, totally a quick read, a really good article. It just felt really uh, relatable because I think that Mm. on a personal level, I identify as a very empathetic human being. And this article was talking about empathy as the root for all of the activities and policies that museums should be and can be working on. And I just thought, yes, let's all be Mm -hmm. better people, more Mm -hmm. empathetic people. And that ability to share the feelings of communities that you, you aren't part of are adjacent to and trying to understand points of view that are not your own. That empathy is so incredibly useful and essential to museum work because you are telling the stories of your community. Your museum is telling the stories of the community and you cannot do that by yourself and you cannot do that without empathy. I like the way that they say, you know, ally, the term ally is a verb, not a noun. So therefore being an ally means you're taking action and it's not some self-identifying word. There really needs to be something behind that word because I think it's easy just to throw it out there and say, yeah, I'm an ally. But what are you really doing to prove that? And this article gives you some beginning steps towards that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really, that's like part of what I really love about this article is that it provides you with a reflection activity that I think would make a really good team building exercise or a solo like independent reflection period in your workplace. I think making sure you're recognizing the the workplace you are in and the dynamics of that workplace. And I think this reflection activity helps build that awareness and create that trust amongst colleagues. I Mm -hmm. highly recommend it. I think that everyone should be doing team building exercises like this. Yeah, there's some great reflection about how museums are very much a part of the quote unquote real world and that the public looks at museums as this pillar of morals and telling us the history and everything. And like these self-reflections really show us that there's a great opportunity to do some work and be drivers for social change and not just keepers of particular histories displayed in a particular way and with particular stories. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot of focus on actively learning and engaging with new information in this article. And I think that part of the work is really important. Not only, yeah, do the reflection activity as a group, but keep doing stuff after that, like doing your homework, like actively learning and seeking out new information Because even as we've seen in the last two years, the dialogues and the conversation that we're having as a society are constantly changing and developing. Nothing is stagnant anymore in this world. Reflection and participation and action is constantly happening. So I think that if you are sitting there saying, I've already learned about X, Y, and Z, you're not actively engaging with the dialogue. Like you need to be always learning something and I think similar to how the reflection activity makes a good team building exercise is that this is something that's really easy to do in team meetings and even I would argue we do it at the BCMA where if we're having a team meeting and someone has learned something or has something to discuss we can bring it up and you and I have been working on the land acknowledgement Mm -hmm. 
And I would say that something we've been doing is constantly learning things. We didn't write the land acknowledgement and stop. We're still taking in a lot of information and each of our team members is located in a different part of the province. So Mm -hmm. even outside of the BCMA land acknowledgement, we all have our own bits to learn. Mm -hmm. Just the other day, I was writing my personal land acknowledgement for something for work. And I learned something new about one of the communities that is in Port Hardy, where I live. And I shared at the team meeting and was like, hey, if you've been living in your place for more than a year, this is your reminder to look up something new because Mm -hmm. you should always be learning. And it's not enough to just be like, well, I already know whose territory I'm on. Go learn Mm -hmm. something new about that territory. Actively learning is part of your job. Yeah. And you can do that both on an individual level, but try to make that space with funding personnel within your organization as well. Make it part of your mandate to do whatever number of training, part of your orientation manual should involve some sort of learning opportunity, like you say, for personal professional growth and self-reflection. And that should be reflected in your budget, I would say, Mm -hmm. like to support that continuous need for learning and training professional development. And because I think that's one of your greatest assets is that information because then you feel better equipped to make those relationships and take action. Yeah, definitely agree. But this one's, like you say, it's a shorter one. And I think it's, a shorter one. it's, I think it's a good inspirational piece of some things you can do and, and the importance of them. And then to end on an even easier note, The next one is actually a video. So if you're like, wow, I'm really sick of all this reading you guys are telling me to do. This is a good time to turn YouTube on because our last resource we're going to talk about is actually coming from the Museum Association of Saskatchewan. And they have a community chat. I think it's like once a month and they have someone from their museum community anywhere in that province come and talk about something. And the one I've picked out for this is Katie Hanna, who's the curatorial assistant at the Western Development Museum, and she presented a talk on language remediation in museums. Specifically, she talked about her experiences in the Western Development Museum, and this was in February 2021. So the Western Development Museum, Western Development Museum, it's all about quote-unquote development, and Mm. it's basically settler prioritized. I didn't know how big the Western Development Museum, but they have multiple campuses across the province of Saskatchewan. They're huge. They're enormous. Katie was super lovely. She had really great insights. So we're going to link the YouTube video for you to watch. But also she included this rubric that she used. This will work really well for museums who are very settler centered in their narratives and their collections if you're sitting in this podcast going I have no indigenous artifacts in the collection I work in this is for you this is what you can do take this rubric that Katie created and walk around your exhibits to look at the language you use in your interpretive text it's eye-opening what you can learn because if you're a, a museum that hasn't changed your exhibits much or you have permanent displays you probably haven't read that stuff since you started working there. <laughs> and that's not good because like we said, the conversation is always changing. It's very dynamic. <laughs> so this is a great rubric to use to analyze the language you use in your interpretive panels because 
there's some troubling language and she gives a couple examples from the Western Development Museum and you can identify where your bias is showing. (laughs) There were some bits of text that she talked about Métis script and I don't know anything about Métis script, but as she was reading the text from the panel and comparing it to her rubric that she used to identify it, she was saying it sounds neutral when you first read it, but there's tone to it that you don't Mm -hmm. consciously pick up on Mm -hmm. if you're not thinking critically yeah Um, but it's a great it's a great resource it's a great tool I highly recommend it it's it was really cool Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed her talk so yeah yeah it was great to see those specific examples I think it would be different seeing just her rubric or like a step-by-step process it was great to see it in action because I think it's relatively easy to do it just takes some time to go and grab your the panels and whatnot and write everything down but once you get into it I think it becomes clear what needs to be changed and it's not hard to do Mm -mm. no and I like I love that part of Katie's job is to do this from the sounds of it it has been worked into her job description that this assessment of their exhibits is part of her job now as a curatorial assistant And I think that's something that we can all learn from is like making these reviews part of your day-to-day activities and in your job descriptions for your staff is important because these are things you can actually identify and fix and make the change. And Western Development Museum is so big. So I think Katie, when she gets done one whole round of it, is just going to have to start again and keep going because things might have changed and Uh, Yeah, I just, I commend them. It's awesome to see them doing this work, even when they feel like they don't have a collection that identifies with sort of the goings on of our sector right now. So Mm -hmm. something to learn. Yeah. And I think even doing that simple work, it spurs more. Mm -hmm. And if you think critically about something as simple as that, you can expand and start thinking critically about how items are displayed or the voices that you're using to tell the stories and share the history. And I think it's just a great, easy way to start this kind of work is looking at panels. And like you say, she does a great job of going through it. It doesn't, it's very conversational. It's welcoming. It's, you know, um, yeah, it's great. And again, you don't have to read it. Yeah. It's a video. Just sit down and watch it. <laughs> yeah. Get some food. Yeah. Have a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great resource. Um, Katie's so I emailed her after because I just thought it was so great. And she's very friendly. And I'm sure if you were using the rubric and had some thoughts, she would happily take conversation with that. So but yeah, it's great. It's awesome. So that's it from us. We are hoping to come back to you every month with a new podcast. And we'll be doing that on a variety of different themes. So thank you so much for your time. And if you yeah, have any thoughts about future podcast ideas, would like to join us or any sort of feedback on the resources that we chatted about today, please feel free to get in touch with us. Our contact information is on our website at museum.bc.ca. 